0: Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast, brought to you by Simply Physio, aimed at helping you live an enjoyable, fit, and healthy life in and around our community of Knoxville, Tennessee. And now, here is your host, Dr. John Mark Chesney welcome to uh, stay healthy in knoxville so i'm
1: super excited to have on the show um, dr nicholas pinella dr pinella is arguably one of the area's top ent physicians um, so that's ear nose and throat specialist he was uh, recognized as a patient choice award recipient for 2018-2020 and specializes in head and neck surgery here in knoxville tennessee he offers a wide range of treatments uh, related to head and neck disorders for all ages his scope of practice includes, but is not limited to, surgical management of head and neck cancer, uh, transoral surgery for um or of pharyngeal cancer maxillofacial trauma thyroid and parathyroid surgery office-based management of nasal obstructions and sinus uh, disorders as well as allergy therapy including sublingual immunotherapy he believes in communicating with patients on a level they will readily understand and strives to ensure all patients are informed of their options before pursuing any surgery or procedure so super excited about our topic uh,
2: dr Panella we'll Welcome to Stay Healthy Knoxville. Thanks, man. I've been listening to the podcast for a little while, trying to kind of understand the the gist of it. And I'm, I'm really excited that Knoxville has the opportunity to have something like this. And I'm really flattered to be has to be on and hopefully we can teach some things and uh, maybe dispel some myths, but uh, I'm excited about today. So thanks for having me. Awesome.
1: Well, um, I'd like to start off understanding a little bit of your journey. So understands understand uh, you grew up in Knoxville, is that
2: right? That's correct. I was born actually in Massachusetts. I'm, I'm almost like an army kid. My dad was a physician as well. So hopped around to lots of towns growing up um, while he was in his training. And then I grew up from kindergarten age all the way up through high school in Knoxville. Left for all my training, but kind of knew all along that um, I preferred to end up back in the Southeast and then the opportunity to come back to Knoxville presented itself. And so I was really excited to be able to jump on that. So yeah,
1: so I had what, your undergraduate uh, degree at Samford?
2: Correct, yeah, a little time in Birmingham. In
1: Birmingham, not California. Correct, correct, (laughs) not Stanford. Yeah,
2: there's a really cool t-shirt that they came out with while I was there that just says Sam, not Stan, uh, because it's so frequent for Samford graduates to be confused with Stanford graduates. But yeah, it's the Stanford of of Alabama, I think.
1: There you go. Uh, My sister graduated. Oh, I didn't realize that, that's cool, that's
2: cool.
1: Samford, (laughs) (laughs) not Stanford. and then I uh, went on to what Wake Forest, um, and then uh, residency in Emory. Correct. So you have uh, family is a medicine, right? Correct. So you said your father um, that he practices as
2: he's a medical oncologist. So okay. both of us are involved in cancer care. There's there's kind of three groups of specialists that are pretty heavily involved in cancer care. There's the medical cancer doctors that are doing the chemo. Um, the radiation oncologists that tend to do radiation therapy or proton therapy, and then there's the surgical cancer doctors. And so, I'm part of the surgical side of head and neck cancer. And actually, he does a lot of head and neck medical oncology. And so, we get the opportunity to share a lot of patients, talk about ideas on people. And so, it's kind of fun. It's, it's really neat to have the opportunity to work with your dad and, and share patients and learn some stuff from him and he learned some stuff from me. So, we've really enjoyed that.
1: Did you see yourself as you were growing up heading into medicine? Was that um, always kind of a direction you were going? Or tell us a little bit about that, that journey.
2: So, I thought I probably did want to be a doctor all growing up. It's funny though, because I think a lot of parents that are in medicine have this tendency to push their kids into it. My dad did not do that at all. Uh, In fact, if anything, I think he knew that it sometimes is a hard road and probably would have been more content to see me steer into something that might be a little less stressful at times. But seeing him do it, seeing him be really satisfied doing it being happy with what he was able to do to help patients... Was something that I couldn't ignore. And so it kind of reinforced that that's what I wanted to do. And I gave myself, I guess, the opportunity to think about different things. I knew I wanted to be more surgical, uh, more hands on. and, And so eventually, after spending time in hospitals around different types of medicine, I was able to kind of settle on what I wanted to do.
1: So you were kind of just headed in that direction.
2: That's right, yeah. Felt like uh, some pull from inside, I guess. And seems like it's been the right choice up to now. I've been really, really happy doing it and can't imagine myself doing something else.
1: I understand you had some training at what, um, like Grady? That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's down in Atlanta. That's right, yeah. Now, is that a um, level one trauma? It, it similar is. Similar to UT Medical? Very
2: similar, um, really, really busy place just because it's the only county. We call it kind of a safety net hospital. Um, it serves the community, whether you're insured, uninsured. And so it was a it was a wild place to work. Uh, it was a challenging place to work, long hours and crazy trauma things that you never imagined. But at the end of the day, it's a it's a really neat hospital. They've got a really cool mission to serve the people that often don't get a lot of good service. And so it's a great place to train um, and it's a great place to kind of Think about why you're in medicine because if you're there you know because you think you're going to be fancy and make a ton of money it is the hospital to convince you that that is not the reason to do medicine because it's just a lot of people working hard to to help these people feel better and so it was a it was a great opportunity for me
1: i guess my second clinical was at ut and physical therapy and so um but I, i just
2: remember similar
1: um understanding of, man, it was um, my very first day in, in clinicals. We had a young guy, he had a head trauma. He was 20, around 20, he's pretty big guy. And uh, I was going in there with uh, my CI, and the the patient was um, in restraints. Um, and uh, so we had to do an evaluation. And so this is the very first day in clinicals, and um, there's an officer in the room. So they they were like, we, you know, for us to do an evaluation, we, we can't be restrained. And so they unrestrained him, um, took off his, his cuffs. And um, we were going through. He started getting confused, started getting agitated, and uh, got to a point like had to wrestle him back. I didn't. I was kind of like moving further, further back but they had to wrestle them back down yeah. onto the bed. I was like, wow. This Welcome is to like- the trauma
2: service. <laughs> That's right. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know, I'm sure you have, uh, you were actually in trauma. The way that they handle head and neck trauma there is it's a rotating thing. So it switches between the oral surgery team, the plastic surgery team, and then the ENT head and neck surgery team. And so, um, yeah, every third night we would be on for whatever gunshot wound to the face, yeah. broken jaw, car accident, all that stuff, anything to the head and the neck. Um, and so yeah, there's there was a whole floor actually at Grady that is the nurses are officers. So the you know everybody's armed, everybody's in chains and cuffs for people that got injured while committing a crime. And so yeah, I mean I I've never imagined that such a place existed. And <laughs> at, at the end of the day though, it's kind of neat because a lot of times you. You meet these people that are in handcuffs that you assume are just the scum of the earth or something, but you realize that they've got their story and they've had their challenges. And particularly in the big city, they, they you know they don't have a lot of opportunities. And so a lot of times they were great patients that had no interest in harming us. And so you you do learn a lot from all right. Let's just treat everybody like we would hope to be treated if we were in a similar situation. and, sure. and it certainly grows you in terms of, you know, gives you some nights where you're in the trauma bay from 3 a.m. until 7 a.m. and you're thinking, God, is this really what I want to do? And so it was kind of, uh, you know, like I said, it was a growth experience, Uh, challenging, but I'm glad I did it. So you were, um, I mean, responsible for kind of putting people back together, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, some challenging surgeries. Yeah, you know, uh, I think Grady's the only place I've ever heard of that we would have patients every once in a while that would get shot in the face and it would go, you know, through the floor of their mouth and out their cheek, and we'd say, you know, all the bones are okay. They'd get a bunch of stitches and go to the operating room, and then they go straight home. I mean, it's just it's it's a place where stuff like that doesn't phase anybody, and the trauma nurses and techs and stuff were incredible. And so, yeah, it was a it was f- just completely eye opening to see how people in these situations live and how these trauma centers function and cope with these things. But yeah, we do bony trauma, like jaw fractures and orbital floor fractures, all the way from that to people that needed massive reconstructive surgeries where we take the bone from their leg and reconstruct the bones of their face. And so it was a, yeah, there's a lot of just wild stuff going on there all the time. And I'm sure still is, uh, it's weird. You kind of leave it behind you and you think, oh yeah, that was a fun era, but it's still going on down there every day. And I guess in all the trauma centers across the world, there are some people that are just absolutely dedicated to sure. getting people through these hard times. So it was neat.
1: Yeah, I've, I've always wondered, like how do you train for like an emergent case? Like all of a sudden they're in front of you and it's, you know, you're having to, uh, there's no what, what textbook for this. Right, right. Yeah, that's the truth. Thing. That's the
2: truth. It, it, and it is, it's kind of neat. It does prepare you. We We used to always say that you want to, when you're, when you're in a surgical training that you have this high volume of complex cases, it teaches you how to operate out of any difficult problem. And so you have to be resourceful and you have to be able to think, okay, well this artery is not really where it's supposed to be. Can I move it and attach it to something else? Or, you know, can this piece of tissue be safely shifted over here and, Um, It gives you a unique perspective when you're going from a a piece of the body that's in such disrepair. it, It gives you an idea of what you need to do to get function back. And even though I don't do a ton of trauma now, just because um, Park West doesn't have nearly the level of trauma that UT or, or um, M- of Grady would have. But even though I do, I do some trauma now, but also in thinking of cancer reconstructions and even sure. just sinus surgery and, and the basics, um, the more you know the pathology, the better prepared you are to, to operate on the simple stuff.
1: I'd imagine if you've... Um Dealt with those highly complicated cases that that it prepares you for sem- semi complicated right. cases. Whether you want to or not, <laughs> you
2: you uh, you end up figuring your way out of the trouble, and it, it helps a ton.
1: So yeah, so then you transition. What you're back up in Knoxville? How long have you been here in Knoxville?
2: So I just started my fourth year of practice here. So I graduated in 2017 from Emory. Um, knew that I wanted to. Um, have a practice where I could do a little bit of everything. I did some extra training when I was at Emory in head-neck cancer. It's a very high-volume cancer center um, down at Emory. And so I did a little bit more cancer-focused training than, than just the average ENT uh, residency. And so when I was looking around for jobs and talking to people in the, in the ENT world, I was looking for the ability to come up and do a lot of head and neck cancer, take care of people that have, you know, cancers in their throats and in their mouths and on their vocal cords and things like that. But to be able to do that and not have it be my whole practice, I enjoy, you know, you spend a ton of time training to do these other things. And it was hard for me to say, well, oh, gosh, I spent all this time doing sinus surgery and I know how to do it. And I don't want to just completely cut that out of my practice. And so what I was looking for was the ability to come back and be in a community that I cared about and, you know, is a city that I love and will always be. Dear to my heart and so i thought it'd be fun to be able to come up and do a little bit of both here and that's that's been the situation i came into i've been really really fortunate to find a practice that i, I love so much
1: so you mentioned you know just um having a little niche if you will into uh, some of the head and um, neck um, cancer uh, just even wondering in the area, are there many ents that I don't know have
2: that um, niche, if you will, in the area, or just there's there's some really really good ents in our area. We're fortunate um, to have some people that are really well trained in my practice and some of the other practices. So yeah, there are some definitely some ents that do some of it. I um, before I came up here, it was a little more disorganized, I think, and so there was. I think a bit of a void to fill because these can these cases can be hard. Um, they can be stressful. The patient outcomes maybe aren't quite as good as you'd imagine. You know, when you take out kids' tonsils, it pretty much always goes well. Um, but some of these other cases are, are complicated and they, they don't always have good outcomes. So there was a bit of a void for somebody that wanted to do that um, as a bigger part of their practice. And so I appreciate all the other guys in town that are doing some of it, but a lot of it has been shifted so that we've got a little bit more attentive you know s- flow of things where it goes from one doctor to me and then we share and i follow the patient and so it just streamlines it a little bit and it, it's probably makes it so that not quite as many people have to be um, referred to vanderbilt or emory or one of the more comprehensive centers for cancer care and and i think patients like that you know sure. people say hey you know i'm in a big big ish city why do i have to go to vanderbilt to be treated and, and so anytime we can keep somebody here and get them, I mean, we have to feel like we're giving them the same quality of care, but if, if we can keep people here and give them high level care without making them drive across the state to get it, it's always, I feel like an advantage for that patient. Um, Yeah. I'd imagine, I mean, there's no place like home, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, and especially when you're going through a stressful situation, it's stressful enough to, you know, know that you've got this life-threatening illness. It's especially stressful if you're doing that while you're driving back and forth to Nashville or Atlanta and having to deal with the hassles that people don't want, you know, parking and, and patient paperwork stuff. And so it just takes some of that stress out of an already stressful situation, which I think is a big win for patients.
1: You know, the part of your practice too is um, helping, I guess, I don't know, the, the everyday
2: individual, if you will. Sure. sure um, yeah. That's a probably pretty good way of putting it. People that have normal problems that we've all had and and uh, some are worse than others, but the, the idea of having both, having some patients that are facing something that's life-threatening and some patients that are facing something that's wrecking their quality of life, but isn't necessarily life-threatening. And I've enjoyed that split, you know, knowing that one patient I might walk into and be talking about palliative care, which is a hard conversation, you know, end-of-life stuff. And then the next person is a, you know, a 13-year-old that just had septoplasty surgery and now they can breathe. And so, um, it's it's been, for me, it was hard to just do one thing with ENT. And so, I've enjoyed being able to do a little bit of all of it.
1: We want to talk uh some about allergies sure yeah so we're gonna sure. um, have um the, really the focus of um the rest of uh the back end of this episode talking about Allergies, and that's a big piece that uh, that you focus on. I'd imagine uh, being in East Tennessee, yeah. There's a need for that as far as in the area. I mean, East Tennessee is one of the worst. It it is. It's
2: yeah. They, they, you know, it's hard to quantify those things. But if you look at the the, some of these reviews, will put together a lot of different factors. Let's say, you know, the relative rates of uh, different types of pollens and. Um, the humidity and the weather because we have four really distinct seasons here um, everything blooms and then it goes away and then it blooms and then it goes away and so the that is a, a recipe for the body to be exposed and then sensitized and then later on down the road you're exposed again and so that's that's a real setup for allergy and so frequently we're ranked as one of the worst regions of the country for allergy and so yes east tennessee is is allergy city for sure for sure so,
1: so I'd reckon it's a good place to be in. Yeah, EDC that's right. To, yeah, you definitely, will never. you'll never run out of allergy
2: <laughs> patients in East Tennessee ever. <laughs>
1: We're going to take a quick break. Sure. And then um, you guys hang on here with the episode. We're going to be talking all things allergies, going over some of the top questions that Dr. Pennell gets asked regularly um, in his practice about how to combat allergies, how to tell different, how to really diagnose, how to determine proper treatments and different treatments that you might not know about um, concerning um, allergy treatment.
0: Stay Healthy Knoxville is sponsored by Simply Physio, a physio clinic that equips and empowers you to live your life to the fullest so that you can enjoy the things you love to do and be the person you are made to be. Simply Physio specializes in helping people get back to a healthy and active lifestyle, living free from pain and medication and avoiding unnecessary surgery. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to receive a special gift from Simply Physio and enjoy listening to the rest of the episode.
1: All right, welcome back to um, the rest of our episode here with uh, Dr. Piniella. Uh We're transitioning just a bit um, to really get into all things allergies. Um, we are, uh, like we talked about here in East Tennessee, it's a hotbed uh, for allergies. So I imagine um, if you are living and breathing here in East Tennessee that you've had your moments um, of um, sneezes, of um, watery eyes, of itchy throats. And uh, maybe had a few of these questions that we're going to get to. So, Dr. Pinnell, just starting with the topic, you know, somebody's coming into your office, like I've kind of described, they just have these symptoms, right? And they're not sure what is going on, but they just know they need, they want some relief. <laughs> How do you go about figuring out, like, what is it that's creating this reaction that they're having?
2: It's a great way of kind of thinking about breaking down these patients because people come in and they don't even know what's bothering them. They just know they're miserable. And so uh, the the challenge is that a lot of these things overlap. So some people have allergies and it's just allergies. Some people have sinus infections and they end up needing sinus surgery. Some people have both. Some people have other stuff going on. So when I'm first seeing somebody, it's it's all about the history. You know, you'd think that it's all scans and scopes and diagnostic stuff. But the reality is, a lot of this you can gain from just sitting down and talking to somebody so with colds we think of things that are temporary sometimes they need an antibiotic um if we think it's developed into sinusitis but it'll generally resolve and they'll get back to a normal state you know if you're getting back totally to normal in between these episodes, it probably is a cold, it's a virus. Obviously, viruses are a hot topic on everybody's mind right now, but there's all these other viruses that can cause similar things. So, that's, that's where we're looking at the acute thing. And honestly, those patients don't make it to us usually because primary care doctors, particularly, we've got a really strong network of primary care doctors in Knoxville. They know how to manage that stuff and, and they, don't, they know that they don't need specialty assistance with that kind of thing. When we're trying to differentiate between sinusitis and allergies or what we call allergic rhinitis... The big thing is seasons. So people that have, you know, like they can tell you I'm miserable every fall, every spring. I know that as soon as I see such and such tree blooming that I'm going to have a bad couple of weeks. That that tends to be more of an allergy history. And with allergies, you mostly will have some of the allergic symptoms outside of the nasal stuff. So itchy skin, itchy eyes, itchy nose, and a lot of sneezing. Those are things that we think, you know, immediately raises my my concern for the possibility that's an allergy-driven thing. Versus the sinusitis, it's usually head pressure or a nasty drainage and feeling like your head's splitting and you feel like your eyes are popping out of your head and you feel like your teeth are you know really really sore and that leans me more towards the sinusitis type stuff and so when somebody comes in we take a long history talk about all these different things that it could be and then we delve into kind of looking in the nose sometimes we use little cameras to look in the nose um, and then sometimes we get cat scans um, much like Probably a lot of people have experience at their dentist where their dentist is using a dental x-ray just right here in the office. We do a similar thing with the sinuses. We can get a quick CT scan of the sinuses that, without using very much radiation, just gives me a picture of what's going on inside of the sinus cavities. That way, we don't have to do surgery or anything just to open them up. So we'll get CAT scan. we'll, We'll look in the nose, that kind of thing. And eventually, we can usually say, okay, you've got a sinus infection. A lot of times we treat that medically. It does not always require surgery. I think frequently people come into my office thinking they're getting surgery, and we end up finding a way to fix it without surgery. And that's always my goal. You know, I don't ever want anybody to get surgery that doesn't need it. And so if somebody comes in with these complaints, it's it's you know starting right off the bat. My goal is all right. What do we what can we do to avoid surgery here? Then if we do the antibiotics, we do the medical stuff. We're throwing all the different you know types of allergy therapy and sinusitis therapy at people, and they're not getting better. That's when we think about doing sinus surgery. And the, the idea of sinus surgery is just get bigger openings to your sinuses so they can drain better um, and you don't have recurrent infections and so that's kind of you know the beginning of the workup is yeah that's the framework and that's it's hard because it's I think patients sometimes are frustrated because they can't verbalize exactly which thing they're suffering from but that's okay you know we're we're very used to that and I think if you're willing to take the time and kind of say all right well do you have this symptom do you have that one we can usually figure out what's really driving the problem
1: sure so um you were mentioning sinusitis uh, or sinus infection what um, contributes to someone developing a sinus infection
2: there tend to be a couple of things. that that contribute and a lot of times they contribute together. So certainly allergies, you know, if you're, let's say you're allergic to a pet dander and you live with a dog and then you know you're allergic to the dog, that's going to create a lot of swelling inside of the nose and anything that makes the nose swell, potentially it can make sinuses swell, then they're not able to drain as well as they're supposed to and so you can get trapped in these cycles where infection gets stuck in the sinuses but they're too swollen to allow the infection out of the sinuses and so certainly allergies, bad colds, you know, you can be a totally healthy person. I see this sometimes Someone coming in and they're 60s and I say, I never had trouble with my sinuses and never been an issue at all. But one, you know, but I had the flu and I had a bad cold in the fall and I just, I can't get better since that time. And sometimes what's happened is the immune system has just been overwhelmed. And now all of a sudden there's all this infection trapped in the sinuses. And until we get the sinuses open, they just, they can't get better and move on from it. And so there's a lot of different triggers. Sometimes it's teeth, you know, a bad dental infection sometimes can spread and, and cause bad sinus infection. So those triggers all work together to create a state where the the nose and the nasal cavity and the sinus cavities are so irritated that they just can't get better no matter what we give them just medically. That's right. Exactly. Just kind of get them over the hump and let the body do the rest.
1: So typically, it sounds like you need to look at some sort of medication help sure. first.
2: Yeah. A lot of times, the a long course of an antibiotic. I mean, antibiotics can be lifesavers. The right antibiotic for the right length of time is the main thing that keeps us from going to surgery for people.
1: Uh, just a little bit off topic, I'd be interested just in this time, as you talked about, being in the pandemic with the coronavirus and, you know, one of the symptoms of is loss of smell. Is that something you've looked into or I understand? Yeah, just it, even- yeah, I
2: just out of total doctor nerd curiosity looked into it some, but like the the idea with some some bad viruses, it's just swelling in the nose that causes this loss of sense of smell. And so we've all, you know, probably had a bad rhinovirus or one of the standard colds. And you say, man, I'm all, I'm all blocked up. I can't breathe. My sense of smell is, is lousy. That's a, a pretty standard thing where the, the sinus, the nasal cavity tissue is just swollen and so there's just not enough air and therefore, the particles that give you smell, it's just not getting in there. So it's just a kind of a blocked nose. With with COVID-19, it's been interesting because the studies are showing that it's the cells right around the nerve that gives you your sense of smell that are dysfunctional. And so the, the virus tends to go right to those cells. And so there are people that have no sense of blocked nose. They don't have mm-hmm. a runny nose. Their nose isn't stopped up. And all of a sudden, their smell just cuts out. And that's the attack of those little support cells to the, to the smell fibers. The good thing is it tends to be reversible. Where luckily, you know, there's been thousands and thousands of people nationwide that have lost their sense of smell from COVID but most of them seem to be regaining it and regaining it fully which is good because um, we call it being smell blind but loss of sense of smell is, is a pretty miserable thing to live with and um, we, we're we happy to see that it doesn't look like there's going to be a large percentage of COVID survivors that are that are having that long term sure
1: yeah and I guess usually what they say it's paired with uh, loss of taste yeah know. exactly taste.
2: It's, yeah it's really disruptive to quality of life because yeah. you come in and, and, and every patient says the same thing they said you know my favorite foods taste like cardboard. Board. and it's a it's it's funny because we get a lot you know you I'm sure you've had other people talking about this, but we get a lot of our, our pleasure centers, our dopamine release from things we do, things we eat. and so if you take away everybody's able, ability to enjoy food it's a it's a pretty unpleasant thing to have to live through.
1: Hopefully the, the coronavirus COVID nineteen after this episode um, airs will <laughs> eventually so. go away. I hope so. So there's some question to that, but um, but yeah. But getting into more back to some of the everyday you know uh, questions that people routinely have. So one question about natural remedies. Sure. Um, so you know you, you hear as as far as eating local honey, as far as you know some adaptation to the the local you know pollen, or uh, I'm sure there's other natural remedies that. Uh, patients ask you about, but would be interested in you know the the local honey one sure. or other remedies that you
2: hear. So the the local honey one, I think people come in and they'll ask me kind of sheepishly. They're like, "Well, some somebody told me maybe local honey worked." And the reality is actually there's some studies on that, and I think that the idea is solid, which is that if you regularly are going to expose yourself to the other things in your environment, it's the same principle that we use when we're doing immunotherapy. So when we're doing allergy shots, when we're doing, and I think we'll talk about it in a little bit, but when we're doing the allergy drops, which is the sublingual immunotherapy that goes under your tongue. It's the same concept. You know, we're trying to teach the body what is a pathogen and what is not a pathogen, what's bad, what's not bad. So, you know, um, the, the reason we get swelling in our nose, the reason we get sneezing episodes is because the body is rejecting that. So if your body for some reason starts to think that pet dander is bad for you then it's going to start to keep it out it's going to try to keep it out so it's going to make you have a runny nose to try to wash it away swollen nose so that you don't bring in as much of it and so those are just protective mechanisms so when we're doing allergy therapy when we're doing what we call immunotherapy whether that's the shots or the drops the idea is you expose the body at a really low dose you say hey you know here's a little tiny dose of dog dander and here's a little tiny dose of ragweed and teach the body hey you know what this isn't poison this is just in the air around you and it, it it tells the immune system to calm down and over time you go up on the dose until the body says hey you know what um you know ragweed's not poison my dog's fur is not poison and and then you see improvement in the in the symptoms and so the idea with local honey is identical you know the the challenge of local honey is it's not going to have everything in it um it depends very much on where the bees are flying around and what little pieces of, of pollen they're picking up. But the idea is there probably is a decent amount of ragweed in, in any local honey or a, you know these types of grass, Kentucky grass and Bermuda grasses that people are allergic to. And so if you are consuming local honey, you're hopefully getting at least enough of a dose to teach your body to ignore those things. Um, the data is not as strong for a local honey versus allergy shots or allergy drops, but it's there. It's certainly there, and and I would never discourage a patient from doing the local honey. Certainly, it's you know going to be less disruptive to your life to eat a little tablespoon of honey in the morning than just sure. to have to come in and get an allergy shot and miss work and stuff like that. So uh, I would never say it's a bad idea to try local honey and then the other kind of natural remedy that absolutely is is backed by good research is saltwater rinses so neti pots neomeda rinses Um, that stuff is not, I think that patients sometimes walk out of my office disappointed if I don't give them an antibiotic or something like that. But Mm -hmm. the reality is those things work. I mean, that's real medicine. The idea is if you're breathing in ragweed and, and, you know, danders of some kind, and they're stuck on the inside of your nose, um, you're going to rinse that out. And so if you rinse out once or twice a day, you're just going to decrease the amount of time that stuff sits in your nose and irritates that tissue. And so those are the two things that are probably the most data behind them as far as natural remedies.
1: So what is it about the actually salt water?
2: The salt water can just go in there. We don't want to use normal water in the nose because the nose has got salt that the barrier in there is, is is sodium based and it's salt driven. So if you just put water in your nose, it'll irritate it. But the salt water is the same level of salinity and the same concentration. So when you rinse salt water out of your nose, it doesn't hurt the tissue at all. It doesn't irritate the tissue and it's just going to mechanically grab that junk that's sitting on top of your turbinates and inside of the nasal lining and just wash it out of there so it's it's just a simple mechanical idea of just flushing the nose out
1: yeah another question to you and this is uh um i would imagine others um people listening are maybe on a very regularly or maybe a daily dose of some over-the-counter allergy medicine so going back just a little story here so um my son um my middle son he's five now when he was infant a he had a very sensitive gag reflex, and we went through a time where he would, during times of, of allergy-like seasons, would have, I guess, buildup of mucus, and with his sensitive gag reflex, he would just throw up, and it would be a nightly occurrence of, you know, he'd eat dinner, and then we, we would start hearing him start to gag, and um, he got trained to a point that he had a little throw-up bucket, <laughs> and every night... With Rou. We tried like having him sleep like on an incline yeah. when it was real yeah. bad to see if we can keep him from from throwing up. And it and it actually took a while to we couldn't figure out what was, you know, we didn't know what was going on. And um yeah, we were working with a pediatrician a little bit and um but man, there was um, yeah. I mean, every night he would throw up, um, and um, it's
2: pay every parent's nightmare. Right? That's right, and yeah, it was, it was yeah. kind of funny too. Yeah. Like
1: um, like looking back, like even see his personality was affected by it. Like as a you know as a, a young child, our pediatrician then you know started putting two together and said, "Hey, let's try this allergy med you know medication." We put him on that. Was a game changer in stopping him from throwing up, but also, like, his personality completely changed. He went from this kid that was like not talkative, kind of grumpy, like he kind of, he would have the scowl on his face until like now he's like the most talkative kid, like doesn't know a stranger, he'll pick up a conversation with it, with anybody. So that was a little bit of our story. But a thought that I've had too is like, as long as we remember, he takes a you know little dose of um, some sort of allergy, you know, medic- over the counter. Um, is there a concern for like taking that regularly for a young child sure.
2: or an adult? So it's a, it's a great question because it comes up all the time maybe not always in my clinic but yeah i'm sure primary care doctors get this constantly too it's the idea of okay what kind of effects can this have and i think your son's example is a great way of thinking about yeah these things are chronic inflammation the body is sending the signal hey something's not right something's disrupted something's out of balance here and then a lot of times we figure out hey you know what this is this is the body rejecting stuff so whether it's a food allergy or a seasonal allergies to something in the environment it's the body saying, "Hey, this isn't you know we're not at our steady state that we like to be at here." And so when when we put people on allergy medicine like that, so the two, the two classes, uh, you know, speaking kind of broadly that we can safely keep people on pretty much forever, we really don't think of them as having long term negative side effects, would be the nasal steroids like FloNase, Nasanex, all those, and then the antihistamines, and particularly. There's the breakdown of antihistamines between Benadryl, which is kind of old school, tried and true, what we call the first generation. Um, it's great. It is. It does prevent some allergic response, but it makes you sleepy. And so that's why people can't just stay on it forever, usually. Versus the new ones, like Allegra, Claritin, Zyrtec, those guys. And so those are drugs that just... Teach your body to not release so much histamine. Histamine is the stuff that makes your skin red when you get a bee sting. It's the stuff that makes you itch when you get poison ivy. It's the stuff that makes your nose miserable when you're allergic to the world around you. So, histamine and antihistamine is just preventing the release of that. So, it's a great drug, but it's a band aid. Um, and so, if people are saying, and I've had plenty of people come in that say, you know what? I'm not that miserable, but I don't want to have to be on Zyrtec every day and flonase twice a day. And if I miss a day, I'm miserable. What can I do to, to not be allergic to the world around me? And that's when we start to think about immunotherapy. If somebody comes in and they say, you know what, I use flonase in the morning every fall, and, and I notice that it keeps my symptoms under the control. You know, should I do allergy shots? My honest advice is probably not. You know, allergy therapy to retrain the body takes some patience. It usually takes a couple of years. And so I don't, I don't tend to think that every single person that has to take a tech is, is going to need allergy therapy uh, or allergy shots, the kind of more aggressive therapy. The one thing I would say, though, because I think that there are a lot of people that miss this, and I wish it was marketed um, a little less cryptically, is that any of them that end in D um, do not need to be taken long-term. So even though you'll find them right next to each other on the shelves, if somebody's taking Claritin, I'm okay with that long-term. If somebody's taking Claritin D long-term, that's got Sudafed in it, and that is not something we want people to be on long, long-term, because it can drive a up your blood pressure it can dry out your you know mucous membranes and those are drugs that are intended for short-term use if you look at the small print on the back it'll say that but but because of the way it's marketed people miss that a lot of the time so if you're taking anything it ends in d or if you're taking Sudafed, which is a great drug for short-term stuff those are not long-term drugs if and if you require that strength of over-the-counter therapy um, that's not something we want people to stay on forever
1: we've kind of been working our way through the levels of uh, yeah. treatment, right? Yeah, it's
2: kind of like a treatment ladder. You know, right. you start at the bottom exactly. and you work your way up. Yeah.
1: Um, so we've talked about some of the natural remedies, uh, some of the uh, you know the over-the-counter things. So and you mentioned um, kind of the progression. Let's say somebody's then taking this over-the-counter almost all the time, and they're looking to actually more solve solve yeah. the problem. That's right. right? That's right. Um, What would be the next step like for that individual that you would take them through?
2: So when somebody gets to the point that they're either just tired of taking so much over the counter stuff and some people even just say, look, I'm spending $70 a month on this stuff. And I want to I just want to figure out a a solution aside from that. If somebody is either having breakthrough symptoms or they're kind of maxed out on the, the traditional medical therapy, then we think, all right. Your allergies may be strong enough, and, and there's tons of people like this in our community. They're like, what's the next step? And the next step is to test for allergies. And so um, there's different ways of doing it, and, and there's different approaches to it. But the general idea is whether it's a blood test or a skin test, you're trying to figure out what is this body overreacting to? Because again, these aren't poisons. You know, the ragweed is not a poison. It's just that some people's body treat it like that. And so we we do either a blood test or a skin test and say, oh, you know what? You're allergic to dogs. Dogs, you're allergic to cats, you're allergic to dust mites, you're allergic to molds, and we can kind of subtype what thing is driving this problem. So then when you can talk about, okay, now we're gonna get to the cause. And and the other stuff is really a band-aid. The other stuff is helping, it's improving symptoms, it's improving quality of life, but it hasn't fixed the problem. Um, once we figure out what people are allergic to, then we go to the next step, which is okay, well, if it's Dust mites, you know, there are things you can do at home to prevent dust exposure, you know, old carpets and old couches and covering pillows and things like that. And sometimes those remedies will work. Um, Unfortunately, the research on those is not as strong as we all think it should be. We think that we can, you know, make this stuff go away and remove dust and dust mites from our house, but it's really hard to do. And so that's when we usually enter into the discussion about, okay, what can we do to retrain the immune system? And that's where the shots and the drops come in.
1: So, yeah, so you would take somebody through some sort of testing to really determine what is it about them. Does that include like food sensitivity too?
2: Or I think food sensitivity testing is still a bit of a controversy because there are some wonderful medical allergists in town that will test for it and treat for it. Unfortunately, the kind of the state of the art for medicine right now is just that we don't have wonderful therapies for, for food sensitivities. And we don't do allergy shots for like, if you're allergic to dairy, we don't have a shot that we can put you on that'll fix that. And so it ends up kind of going down to to avoidance. And so we can, you know, certainly you can test for food allergy, but the big thing for food allergy is knockout diets. So it's okay. I think I've noticed my kids real sensitive when they have such and such food. So, so you just knock it out as a trial. And, and that's honestly the, the main, now there's some stuff on the horizon for like peanut allergy and some things like that, but, um,
1: elimination diet kind of thing, diet ends I'd, up being
2: kind of the main thing but in a, in the future there's going to be some better therapy for peanut desensitization that's that's safer and there's the idea of a patch that you put on your skin so you stay kind of low level of exposure all the time and there's some promise from the trials coming out of that um, so yeah it's mostly centered on when we're doing allergy testing it's mostly centered on environmental allergies so that's you know danders and molds and pollens and weeds and that kind of stuff that's that's primarily what we're going to be treating with allergy shots or allergy drops
1: yeah even talking about um peanut allergies i was reading a book i can't remember the the book now but um it was talking about the development of allergies peanut allergies yeah and especially children and yeah it's fascinating it was really fascinating to so, like the, the author was just you know talking about it, it made a lot of sense was, as far as you know our culture yeah of cleanliness cleanliness yeah, yeah. And, you know hand sanitizer mm-hmm. Um, you know, washing everything. Which we put on ten times since we yeah. got here today. <laughs> That's yeah, <right>. yeah, exactly. it <laughs> will be interesting what comes of oh, after the pandemic, right? It's like, not going to be good for allergies. Um, like of creating this environment, you yeah. know, where uh, there's a little exposure, right, right. Um, and how it's, you know, created. At least you know, the author was saying, um, this extra sensitivity to all these food, like you know, back when you know I was growing up, peanut allergies. I don't remember no, if that would really not being, near a, being thing. a thing, right? Yeah, like. Some of my younger siblings, like maybe, you know, start a little bit, but now it's like, you know, the school, you have your, you know, the table where that's right, you know,
2: peanuts. And, and I think it's, it's unfortunate that there's been like this kind of press backlash that we're coddling our kids and stuff. But the reality is these are, dangerous allergies and we do not want to mess with that. So we probably need to figure out as a society what's driving it, um, but we don't want to take it lightly just because, you know, it's easy to be like, oh, well, you know, back in my day, nobody had peanut allergy. It's like, well, I don't know what's causing it, but these kids do have peanut yeah. allergy and we need to take this very seriously because it can be a super scary, dangerous thing, especially for for families that are living with a kid that's got it. Sure. But yeah, there's a, there's a really cool study. It's years old now, but the idea was they just looked at a simple factor of whether kids had a dog in the home or not. Um, and kids that have a dog in the home, have a lot less environmental allergy. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would a dog make you any better? It's not because of like love and affection for the pet. It's because the pet brings nasty stuff into your house every day. Mm-hmm. And, and that dirt and that mold and that dust that they're tramping around in your house is actually protecting kids from allergies. And it's bizarre, but the reality is that our very clean, sterile world may not be the best thing for our immune systems. Sure. And so when we're doing this allergy therapy stuff, we're teaching the body that same lesson that some of these kids learn and some of these kids' bodies don't learn. Um, and so when we treat for allergies, the, the idea is, okay, this is bad for you, this is not bad for you, and, and how do you tell the difference?
1: Just, I know we were getting a little bit off topic, but Sorry, yeah. coming, I mean, coming <laughs> back, so even talking about like peanut allergies, yeah it doesn't, um, I think you made a comment, it's not really there yet for right, right, right. like immunotherapy yeah, or the, really retraining the body. Right,
2: right, the the way that we process food allergy is a little different so if I'm outside and and somebody's mowing their grass next to me, I'm being exposed through my nose and through my mouth, that's that's where you're getting that exposure, it's touching those membranes and that is what we're treating with allergy shots and allergy drops is those type of allergies. When you're processing a food allergy, it's processed deeper down in in, in some of the cells in your intestines and so because of that, we still, we don't have a great shot for that and a way to teach the immune system that because it's a... It's just a little bit different process. cycle of process. Yeah. The way we process it. And so we, we don't have a great way of breaking that cycle just as of yet. And so people that have bad food allergy mostly just end up on a really, um, you know, a, a stable knockout diet where they just avoid shellfish because we don't have a way of teaching the body not to be allergic to shellfish as of yet. But I'll say the, the medical allergists are doing a wonderful job progressing that field. And I, I don't think it'll be long before we have more solutions for people.
1: So we've mentioned a little bit, or you have talked about immunotherapy. Sure, yeah. So I'd love to get into um, understanding who that's for. Sure. What is it? Um, Are there different applications of it? And what? Who's who's that? Yeah. What problem does that solve? So
2: that's the one we're talking about. Less of a band aid, more of like an actual treatment. Really retrain the immune system, it's it's gotten to be where it's a pretty effective thing. It's not 100%, but about 90% of people will notice a pretty significant improvement. Now, some of them are going to be completely better. They're never going to take another Zyrtec. Most of them will still have occasional allergy symptoms, may still need Zyrtec or Flonase or something like that, but are not going to be so hampered. You know, people that say, well, I can't even go outside during the spring because I'm just so miserable. Those are the people that really benefit the most. And the idea is there's there's two main ways of doing it right now. And again, there's, there's actually some pretty cool progression in the field at the moment but for the time being there's allergy shots which i'm sure we all know people that have been on allergy shots You come in once a week you get a shot you start at a really really small dose um, because you're exposing the body with this big dose all at once, you know, you get a shot under your skin and boom, here's all this, you know, ragweed and dust pollen, all this stuff that's exposed. Um, and so we have to be careful cause it can trigger anaphylaxis. So, and that's like a system wide dangerous body reaction. So we don't want to trigger anaphylaxis. So we start really, really low doses. And then we go up over a long period of time. So over like 10 months to a year, you're escalating on your therapy. And then you get to the point where you're coming in once a week and getting a maintenance shot. And that usually lasts three ish years. So it's great. It's safe. It's been tested and proven in, in lots of different countries and, and insurance covers it, which is nice. And it's a, it's a wonderful way of treating allergy. The problem is it's tremendously inconvenient. You know, I can't imagine integrating that into my schedule. I can't imagine integrating it into my kid's schedule. Fortunately, I haven't had to. Um, and so for some people, that's just a non-starter of an idea. Say, so, well, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I'm a long-haul truck driver. I can't do that. I mean, I can't be in one place every Monday for an allergy shot. So in Great Britain, they were having a lot of trouble with when they went to the National Health Service. Um, they were having trouble because they were saying, hey, look, Allergy shots, there can be these scary reactions and they're expensive for us as a healthcare system to have to administer what else can be done. And so there's some good research that came out of Europe um, a while ago talking about sublingual immunotherapy where they, they were doing, all right, well, let's take these same solutions, these same drops that we're mixing up and putting into the shots and just put them under your tongue. And, um, and and do it every day so that you can get exposed faster and exposed at a higher load. But because that's the way the body is made to process these allergens, like I said, you're outside in your yard and you're, that's how you're getting exposed anyway, the body processes it with a much lower chance of anaphylaxis. And so allergy drops came out of that notion, which is that how do we expose in a more natural way? Um, and so it is truly... I mean, it's done in a doctor's office, but it's a much more natural way of treating allergy. And so with allergy drops, you come in, you get tested the same way you would for shots, except for you leave with a little bottle. And the bottle, you're gonna give yourself a couple of drops under your tongue every morning to teach that same lesson, except for just in a little safer environment. The good deal with those is that they're tremendously safe. And the most of the research says that they're just as effective. Um, the World Health Organization is endorsing allergy drops now, whereas previously they said, well, they're kind of investigational. Now they're saying, mm. hey, look, this is just as good. And And so in most countries, the United States not being one of them, in most countries, that's either the standard of care or it's at least considered kind of an equal standard of care. In the U.S., the insurance companies have been a little slower to pay for it and they've been a little slower to come on board with it. We're seeing some progress, but for now... In the state of Tennessee, at least the insurance insurers are not paying for it. We do it uh, at a at a, a rate that is actually very similar to what you'd pay if you're on allergy shots and your insurance was paying it because you've got all the copays and stuff. Um, but it does come out of pocket, and that's a that's a disadvantage, obviously, and it, it is an inconvenience. But we've got great options uh, to do that, and and it's it's something that I've actually it's weird, like you said, I, I came up to do primarily cancer surgery um but it's one of the parts of the practice in knoxville that i've enjoyed the very most is taking care of some people that have been able to do allergy drops have their life be bothered and interfered with a lot less and still make really good progress um i have a a friend that that was Uh, had tried allergy shots three different times. And each time he would get up to the kind of the effective, what we call the maintenance dose. And he would be so miserable from the shot. It would make his arm look like he'd got hit with a baseball bat. I mean, just big red swollen. So he just could not tolerate the shots. And he's been on the drops now for about two years. And he's totally different. You know, he can go outside, he can mow his grass. He doesn't even wear a mask when he's outside. I mean, it's it's a life changer for him. And it's been kind of fun because... You know, like we talked about, the, the cancer patients are facing this like life-threatening thing versus allergy patients that are facing bad allergies. But you still see the same thing where it's like, man, this was ruining my quality of life and now it's changed. And that's that's really fun to see. And I'm always happy for people when they get those good responses from it.
1: Comparing the two shots versus the sublingual drops. So, the drops uh you don't need to come in for regular Correct. appointments. Yeah. Do right, they, right. Um, the, like the concentration yeah. change?
2: So it does initially, yeah, but it changes much faster. So okay. we, we escalate over like two weeks versus escalating over 10 months. Okay. And that again, just gets back to the safety. So, you know, the body is processing something that is in the environment the same way it always does, which is that's that tissue that's really rich in the, the lymphatic tissue under the tongue. Um, and that's the stuff that's processing it. So the body is, Kind of, it's a it's a known uh, adversary. You know, like the body is used to uh, treating and responding to allergy that way, and so you can go up faster and you can maintain a higher dose, unlike shooting it under your arm, into your bloodstream, which is not a, something that the body's used to. It's a not a known adversary. And so the body has more of a tendency to freak out and have anaphylaxis. We, we took side. care of a little girl. Um, she was school age just a couple of weeks ago. She came in, really disruptive allergy symptoms, really miserable for most of the year and actually allergic to a, a cat that lived in the house. And so went from just miserable all the time, red eyes, itchy, thinking about getting rid of the cat, you know, all this stuff. And then tested, uh, the parents knew that she wasn't gonna do allergy shots just because you know, she was a little kid and, and that's just not very realistic. Um, and has been on, and, and within a couple of days, got her on the drops. And then within a couple of weeks of being on the drops, Noticed immediate improvement, and and so we'll keep her on them for a while, which is annoying. People don't like to have a medicine they're on for three years, but that's about how long it takes to really enact meaningful change in the immune system. So she'll stay on those um, for, with, about th- for three for years. three years. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of three years, we'll see how she does. If we kind of wean her off of them, some people need to be on them longer. Some people probably we could take them off sooner, but you know we don't really know who's who until we try. Yeah, it's a it's a really neat process. Um, is there a you mentioned this? Yeah, is the age old. limit is six in our clinic. Um, there's some places that are pushing it a little earlier, but we do, we, we use six because, um, we know that there's starting to be some more maturity of the immune system. A, a six year old immune system is more similar to an adult immune system than like a six month old immune system. So we don't want to do too much shaping and correcting of the immune system while it's still in development. Um, and that's why we haven't gotten too much younger, but I, again, I wouldn't be surprised with a lot of research that's going on if that changes a little bit over time.
1: Yeah. Well, on the topic, we've asked a lot of questions, anything that I maybe hadn't asked, <laughs> Um, in uh, regards that would that questions you get asked maybe from clients about uh, from patients about immunotherapy or other options uh, for allergy treatment.
2: You know, my hope would be that people that are listening to this can answer some of these questions on their own, and and you can kind of triage yourself. I think I mean literally everybody you know around here has some of these symptoms, and it's kind of fun to think about okay, yeah, that, that rings true. That's me. You know, I'm, I'm a chronic sinusitis. I know yeah. it. Or versus, uh, you know what? I'm really just allergic rhinitis. And so, um, you know, I like the way you structure that. I think that that pretty well covers it. One thing we didn't talk about, um, blocked nose. There yeah. are some people, maybe it's a deviated septum because you get whacked with a baseball when you were a kid or um, really big turbinates from years of having some mild allergies. Some people just have really blocked noses. And that those are people that sometimes will benefit from procedures to reduce the size of the turbinates, which is some of the, the tissue in the nose. Nose or have their septum straightened. Um, and some of the people that, you know, will have some of these symptoms will find out that's not really bad allergies. It's not really chronic infection. Just I can't breathe out of my nose. But that's, that's something we see a lot of too and something we can certainly help people with.
1: Uh, there's I guess certain um, testing that you do yeah, as far as sure. just looking at yeah, the size. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we passages. look in the nose literally. I mean, yeah. I look
2: in there with a headlight and it's a little like thing. Pretty small yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, there's a special <laughs> instrument that it's not painful, but it lets me kind of look inside of the nose. Yeah. Sometimes we'll um, get a CAT scan when we're in the midst of that workout, just to make sure that we're not having chronic sinusitis as well. So um, the uh, the idea is that sometimes these things can masquerade and look like one thing, but actually be another. And so a lot of times we'll get a CAT scan just to make sure it's not a chronic infection.
1: We're um, wrapping things up. Sure. Um, so I'd like to end the, the last part of the podcast just with some rapid fire questions, Love it. Dr. Panella. So um, as far as focus on Knoxville, if you would let us know about uh, a bucket list thing around Knoxville that you would um, East Tennessee that you would like to go explore that you haven't yet?
2: So I love the outdoors. I would, um, you know, that that's kind of one of the big draws decency for us and I think for a lot of people. Um, and I, my family loves the outdoors. My wife is not a big, camper, like tent camper, and I think she'd be okay with me saying that on air. But So she loves the outdoors, she likes to hike, but she's not a big tent camper so I'm waiting for my son to be old enough to do um, one of the sunrise hikes. I'd really like to go up and do Lacant and hike it at night and then stay up there in a tent and, and wait for the sunrise. A bunch of my friends did that growing up and I've never had the opportunity to do it, so that's that's on my Knoxville bucket list yeah, for sure. Yeah, anywhere in
1: particular you would think uh, about going? I think
2: that the one that apparently is just a, a really cool one is the Leconte uh, sunrise hike, mm-hmm. and so yeah, I guess I'll have to look into what age a kid can do that, but hopefully... Hopefully you're getting close. Have
1: you ever stayed up there at
2: LeConte? I've been out there. I've never stayed up there. Okay. Yeah, I've done the hike though before. Right. I've, yeah.
1: yeah, I've done it too. And I hear it's quite fun to I, to reserve a spot. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah that's, get a spot. That's
2: definitely bucket list for me. <laughs>
1: what about um outside around Knoxville, a place that you like to frequent, to enjoy?
2: Um, we're big lake people. My uh, my parents uh, love to spend a lot of time on Teleco. And so we've done a lot of that. Just just so much natural beauty in our our area. And we do, do some wakeboarding and wake surfing and, and tubing with the kids. And stuff, so that's uh, that's one of the just the huge assets that Knoxville has to us is just the cool, beautiful lakes that are clean and easily to get in and out um, of. And so, yeah, that's that's big for us.
1: Yeah, I love to, um, I've never wake surfed. Yeah, my parents have a boat, so we'll get out there in the inner tube and yeah. ski or wakeboard a little yeah. bit, but. yeah surfing looks, um, looks yeah. Pretty fun too. yeah,
2: it's fun. It's a little, uh, maybe a little more grown up than the wakeboarding. Wakeboarding still hurts pretty bad when you fall, but the, the wake surfing is maybe a little gentler. <laughs> right. and probably for you as a physical therapist, you probably just cringe when you see a 45 year old person just flop on a wakeboard thinking of all the back problems.
1: Yeah. As a teenager, I had a bad, I think it was skiing. I remember I had to actually have PT and that's yeah. how I got into yeah, that there field you go. a there little because I took a hard tumble. Yeah. Um,
2: and, um, uh, messed up something (laughs) yeah yeah it's (laughs) it's not a natural way to fall for sure what's one of your favorite uh, places to eat favorite restaurant man i tell you what and i know it's it's gotten a lot of attention but i love yassine's the falafel house the one i go to is usually on cedar bluff i go there i try to at least get away from the hospital and get up there at least once a week i love that place i love the owner yassine great guy um just good person very good food i'm a falafel person okay yeah yeah yeah, i love the falafel i think it's uh it's it's the best around yeah for sure
1: Leave our listeners, um, Dr. Pannell, with um, best tip recommendation for staying healthy.
2: So I I get this a lot in different iterations, but but my if if I had to say one thing that I think you could do to really just optimize almost every area of your health, it's digestive health, it's it's allergies, it's sinusitis. I think that plants intrinsically are healthier than animals. And so if we are looking to kind of, you know, the one of the things that I try really hard to do, although probably don't do as good of a job um, because of Chick-fil-A, but um, <laughs> I try to really get most of my calories from plants. I mean, I think that it's really hard to be a pure vegan. I actually did that for a while just for health reasons. And I think, you know, I, my wife and I did it before we had kids and you feel great. You know, plants are. The most, they've got all these antioxidants, they've got this, you know, this idea of phytonutrients, things that fight disease that we don't even know about. And so, when somebody is just struggling with a lot of different chronic illnesses, that's my number one piece of advice is just the more of your calories, the more of your nutrition you can get from plants, the better off you probably are.
1: Well, um, Dr. Piniello, with our listeners that are interested in the topics that we talked about, allergies um, and um, breathing better, enjoying sure. life yeah. um, here in East Tennessee with services that you have, uh, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you?
2: There's a bunch of ways. We try to stay accessible. You don't need a referral to our clinic. Um, some some surgical specialties, you've you got to have a referral from your primary. But We try to stay away from that because we know a lot of times people are able to triage and, and kind of see that they need to see us and so we've got our clinic office number is 865-693-6065 if anybody want to just call and make an appointment if you google my name you'll run across you know the links to the website and stuff if you want to learn more but we try to stay really accessible actually I think if you look hard enough you can find my email address on the website I don't mind for people to email me directly it's in com. and I tell you what I don't even mind if it saves you an office visit. I've had plenty of people email me with just a question, and I'll answer the question. And they'll say, "Well, why do I need to see you?" And I'll say, "No, you know, that's there's no reason to come in here and pay sure. a copay with your insurance." We know insurance companies have gotten strange about copays and stuff. And so, yeah, if if anybody wants to email me directly, they're welcome to. If they want to come in and see me and let me look in your nose and get CAT scans and things like that, I'm, I'm happy to help. And um, like I said, it's it's fun for my practice to have. You know, some people are like, "Wow, am I really sick enough to go see an ENT surgeon?" I'm not sure if I'm really that bad off, but I, I don't mind to see people that are, you know just disrupted and not necessarily tremendously ill. And so if, if something's interfering with your quality of life, yeah, pop in. We'd be happy to see you.
1: I can speak from um, just uh, having clients that have worked with Dr. Piniella and I just um, yeah hear uh, raving reviews from appreciate how you that. handle um, you know, your patients and they appreciate your care and your attention to detail and just how you communicate with them. So if anybody's listening and, um, and you have um, a need in these areas that we've talked about, I strongly encourage you guys to um have a visit have a consult with dr pinnell let him um, take care of you
2: thanks man i appreciate you having me on really enjoyed it
1: yeah man i enjoyed it too and um yeah look forward to um seeing you out and about at f3 yeah we didn't right. talk much about f3 yeah yeah well, that's, to-
2: that's another healthy thing if you want to be healthy just come out for a run with john mark he'll he'll get you into shape uh and if you can't if you can't keep up then don't feel bad because very few people can
1: <laughs> so uh, um if if you stayed on to the end of the episode um yeah, and you talk with Dr. Pinnell You'll have to ask him how he got the nickname Blue Cross. So maybe one we will we'll share it here. <laughs> yeah, but, um, that's if, right. Yeah, that's right. He'll know that you've listened to the podcast. That's exactly right. Yeah, you're. If more... you ask him how he got the nickname Blue Cross, yeah,
2: I'll be ap- happy to answer that
0: candidly off the air.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thanks for having yeah, of out. Of course, of course. And uh, stay healthy, Knoxville.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast. Brought to you by Simply Physio. If your pain is preventing you from staying healthy and active and you'd like to avoid surgery, pain medicine or just want to get back to doing the things you love in and around Knoxville, we offer both a free ebook and free over the phone consultation to help you figure out the root cause of your pain and the next best steps for resolving it. Find our ebooks online at simplypt.com/health-tips. There you will find ebooks for topics such as neck and shoulder pain, lower back and hip pain, knee pain, and TMJ. These quick-to-read reports will provide you with expert tips, tricks, and exercises to help solve your pain from the comfort of your own home. Just visit simplypt.com/health-tips to download your ebook and have it delivered directly to your inbox. We also offer free, no-obligation phone consultations with a doctor of physical therapy to Knoxville area residents. Just call us at 865-351- 0615 or visit us at simplypt.com and click the talk to a PT button on the home page to schedule a call with us. Thanks again for joining us and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast.